Today's episode of Lions of Liberty is brought to you by MathBot.com. MathBot.com is a fun little game that fills a serious hole that the public and even the private schools miss, and that is knowledge of programming and the math behind programming. MathBot.com gives parents a much-needed tool to make sure their children don't fall behind in this new information age. Software is eating the world, and those who don't know how to code will be left behind as more and more jobs become automated. MathBot.com gives kids and even adults like me, the knowledge needed to thrive in this new world. MathBot may just seem like a fun and simple game, but behind the scenes, it uses the same method Julius Caesar, Isaac Newton, Einstein, and everyone else were all taught math before the state got its greasy hands into education. This method goes all the way back to classical Greece, the dawn of civilization. MathBot will gradually upload the math and logical skills needed to understand programming into the mind of any player. It's said that the pen is mightier than the sword, but now code is even mightier than the pen. So become mighty and learn to code over at mathbot.com. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Yo, yo, Lionos, and welcome back to the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast. A great way to start your week is by listening to the beautiful sounds of my voice, talking to other people about the ideas of liberty. Another great way to start your week and your day is with a delicious cup of our Morning Roar coffee. This is a new partnership we have with Anarcho Coffee, and I can now proudly say that this is delicious coffee. I can legitimately tell you that now that I have tried it. So please do head over to lionsofliberty.com slash coffee. You gotta use that link for us to get paid. And of course, I know you guys want us to get paid. After all, we do deliver you three completely free of charge doses of liberty every single week, starting with this, the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast, which I have been hosting for almost six years now. This is September. We're gonna be looking at six years that I've been doing this show. Very, very mind-blowing. And we're also creeping up on episode number 400, this being the 396th episode, meaning that you can find today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 396. I've got some interesting plans for episode number 400. I'm trying to keep them under wraps, but I'm very confident that you're going to find it very interesting and compelling, as of course you always do here each and every Monday with me. But it's not just me here at Lions of Liberty. I have compatriots. I have fellow Lions of Liberty hosts, starting with Brian McWilliams, every single Wednesday when he brings you his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land, while my esteemed colleague John Odermatt continues his inspirational, hard-hitting look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. You get it all for the price of one, and that price is free by hitting that subscribe button on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever it is you listen to this program. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a great rating, hopefully a five-star rating and an excellent review. That stuff still does help us out there, help us reach more people, help get more uh, liberty in more of those earbuds out there, which, of course is all of our goals. Because if we're not talking to each other, folks, well, you know, we're probably fighting each other and we don't want to fight now, do we? But history, of course, is filled with fighting and that is something I'll be discussing with my guest right now. 
All right, my guest today has been a college history professor since 2006, and he founded the Dangerous History Podcast to help listeners learn the history that the establishment doesn't want them to know. And as part of that podcast, he recently completed a 28-hour, 15-part series on the Civil War. Quite impressive, if I do say so myself. I'm very pleased to welcome Professor C.J. Kilmer. C.J., are you ready to roar? I'm greatly ready to roar. <laughs> I didn't know we were going to get a guest appearance from Tony the Tiger. Yeah, Tony the Tiger on the, on the Lions of Liberty show, but uh, yeah, it's close enough. Very good. Tigers, Lions, we're all out there roaring about something. And you have been out there roaring both in the classroom and then also through your podcast, Dangerous History, about history. So why don't we just start right there before we dig a little bit deeper into some of your Civil War work, which I'm definitely interested in talking about. But why don't you first tell us a little bit about how you became so obsessed with history and a little bit about how your political beliefs sort of developed from there? Yeah, well, I got interested in history pretty young, starting in middle school and and increasing in kind of high school years. And it's one of those things, I think part of it is when you go to public school, as I did, you know, most of your teachers are somewhere between mediocre to poor. But, you know, you have those handful who are the, the hidden gems, I guess. And it just so happened that I had both in middle school and then again in high school, I had really excellent history teachers that just, you know, head and shoulders above the typical public school teachers that I had. And so that got me interested. And then I just kind of followed my own interest. And I had parents that were pretty encouraging of me kind of learning things on my own. So I was one of those people spent a lot of times in the libraries and just, you know, reading all kinds of stuff. So I decided to do it in college. And then I got into teaching it. And then I decided I wanted to do something a bit more wide open and free than a, a conventional teaching thing. So that brought me to the podcast. But I'm pretty rare in the sense that I was kind of a moderate conservatarian-ish sort of a person for a lot of my my teenage years and, and 20s and whatever, but I eventually became like a radical, hardcore, Lysander Spooner-style individualist anarchist. And actually, what's unusual for me is that studying history was a huge part of what brought me the rest of the way to becoming much more radical that I spent all these years, you know, at this point, we're talking over two decades, really just interested in history and learning all kinds of different things about it. And eventually, it was the study of history that helped me to just come to the conclusion that like, yeah, this whole idea of the state and the whole idea of rulers, regardless of what your methodology is for picking them or whatever, is really problematic and and has you know philosophical and moral problems has logical problems and if you just look at the last 5000 years of human history it has lots and lots of real world consequences you know all the wars all the democides all the you know forsaken economic growth and innovation that may have occurred without resources being diverted into all these sorts of things, you know, you start to put all that together and you realize that this whole idea of statism has a lot to answer for. It's a really interesting pathway, CJ, because I think for a lot of us, the history that we learn, at least in public school here in the U.S., it really is very much the history of the state, or at least of the modern American state, the history of nationalism. All the stories that we are told and the way we're taught history are basically designed to lead us to the conclusion that the giant monolithic state is a wonderful thing and has done fantastic things throughout history in righting all the wrongs of the world. But in many ways, like a 
real true look at history like you do or like you attempt to do is really about battles between states. So I'm curious if you can dig a little bit deeper there on what were some of the things that you started to see when looking at history, when looking at the conflicts between states or within states that made you realize that maybe that entire concept was something to question. Well, in terms of the wars, I mean, part of it was it was me studying history and then simultaneously watching current events. So I also should give some of the credit for me becoming much more radical to the presidency of George W. Bush, which, in my opinion, he was the worst president so far of my lifetime. I'm not dead yet, though, so there's still potential room for even worse. We'll see. But looking at like what he did in terms of the wars that he started that you know were totally unnecessary and, and very wasteful and destructive of, of lives and resources and everything – and and that got me thinking in a more critical sense about war. I'd been raised in a relatively conventional kind of right-wing patriotic household and, and all that. So I'd never really thought much critically about war before. And then watching those those things happening, like the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war, in real time on the news and, and really paying attention to it, and at the same time, starting to take a different look at wars throughout human history – those things made me really see war in a different light. And I began to realize things that are hidden in plain sight in a lot of ways, such as that in most wars in human history, the people who suffer the most, pay the most, die the most, and all that are pretty much almost always just random people that were born in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, most of them in a lot of wars are just random civilians who just happen to live in the wrong place. And and even a fair number of those who die as soldiers in war are very often conscripts to one degree or another. They don't necessarily all really want to fight either. So that made me question the state in terms of the war. And it was really starting to question wars and conflict that really helped me become more radical. And then I started to see things too, such as some of the specific wars just in American history, how virtually all of them to at least some degree were started under false pretenses or at least misleading pretenses. And I started to see the patterns there of how often these things were built and sold on lies or at least, you know, at best, very, very partial truths with huge amounts of of the truth left out on purpose so that it wouldn't shade people's understanding of things. And so I, I just started to put all this together. And one thing that I I do in my show that I think makes me kind of unique is that I spend a fair amount of time just sharing like mainstream historical scholarship with people and primary sources with people. These are, you know, rarely am I citing from books that are considered to be normally like, you know, conspiracy theory books or super radical books or whatever. I mean, sometimes I do. If they have good information, I do. But a lot of the time i'm i'm referring to stuff published by like very respectable you know academic presses and this sort of thing it's just that the general public has no idea how much really dark things that could potentially change your paradigm are hidden in plain sight just you know they're sitting there in academic journals or in academic books that no one is ever going to read just because, you know, just because nobody reads those things. So, so part of what I do in my show is like, I go and look at that stuff and I find all kinds of stuff. And very often it's by historians who are not themselves really radicals or libertarians or anything like that. But 
it's just a matter of when you view it through from a certain perspective and put them together in a certain way, you realize like, no, actually there's a fair amount of pretty mainstream stuff that if you just put it together in the right way, actually makes a very radical case, if that makes any sense. Sure. And when you're talking about, I guess, all these primary sources that were out there and you're able to put things together in in a certain way, does that really make you think about how our history, I guess, sort of lessons and that sort of thing have been designed and fed to us through our public schools and even our universities? I mean, because I think when you're what you're sort of saying here is, I mean, the information is there. It's all out there of the actual what that happened. It's really just a matter of what story are you going to piece together in what manner. I'm sure you have a certain approach to designing your stories. I mean, these are all stories in a sense. What do you think is the most flawed reason, or I guess, what is the biggest problem with the approach that is taken through our current school system, through the way that we are taught history, you know, for the most part? Yeah, well, I'm actually someone, I don't believe there is really such a thing as objective history. I don't think such a thing is possible. I think there is, though, In the same way that, for example, I don't think there's such a thing possible as objective news, because you're always making choices. Some of them are conscious and deliberate, and some of them are just subconscious. Like whether whether we're talking about a news person or we're talking about an historian, even the the choices of like what topics are you going to cover versus which ones are you not? I mean, you can't cover everything. Choices as to what sources do you consult and look at and which do you maybe don't even occur to you to to look into. And so then then there's the conscious and deliberate things where people are deliberately trying to slant things a certain way. And and I try not to do that. I mean, I know we're all prone to it, myself included. So my view is there's no such thing as objective history, but there is such a thing as honest history. And honest history includes things like not deliberately falsifying anything. It includes being open and upfront and transparent about what kind of perspective you're coming from when you're looking at a given story. And then also things like not lying by omission. Like for example, let's say something I'm going to be doing that I've been working on a long time and I'm going to start releasing episodes probably in the next month or two, a series on Woodrow Wilson, who I'll just throw my cards on the table. I'm I'm one of the the many libertarians who thinks he's the worst president in American history so far. And if I find something in my research about Woodrow Wilson that paints him in a positive light, I'm not going to leave that out of the story. I'm going to I'm going to actually kind of put a spotlight on it and say, "Look, here's, you know, there's all these other reasons I I don't like Woodrow Wilson and I and I mostly see him as a bad president, but look, here's this one thing, you know, that's it, so whereas someone who had an axe to grind would maybe be more likely to, and and who wasn't trying to be honest, would maybe be more likely to leave out things that contradict the point they're trying to make. So a person who's just trying to make a hit piece on Woodrow Wilson might find something positive about the guy and just leave it out of the story. I wouldn't do that. And, or someone who's, you know, typical, typical establishment sort of person writing mostly good stuff about Woodrow Wilson, they would leave out or at least like kind of minimize and apologetic away some of the things that Wilson that even even by their own standards, even by the mainstream establishment standards, are kind of not endearing, like Wilson's racism and things like this. So, yeah, I mean, when, when you understand that history, it's no more objective than, say, like a work of art depicting something. Like, let's say you you have a work of art depicting a tree, but that work of art is not the tree. It is a representation of the tree. And the artist 
made all these choices, conscious and subconscious. Okay, what what kind of you know distance am I painting the tree from? What sort of perspective? What's the lighting? What's the you know what sorts of aspects of this thing do I emphasize versus do I de-emphasize? And so when you realize that history is really just that, it's a depiction or, or representation of the past. It's not the past itself. You know, the same way the map is not the territory. Then you realize how much that these institutions such as the state and kind of all of its satellite institutions that, you know, deal with concepts like history, you realize how much they're slanting things to their own narrative. And oftentimes, I'm sure, in ways they're not even aware of as they're doing it, because to them, the kind of standard mainstream, statist-friendly establishment narrative is sort of like the water that the fish live in, and the fish don't know that there's water kind of thing. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it. I actually do want to dig in to Woodrow Wilson just a little bit, because we actually did a, a roundtable on President's Day where over a few adult beverages, we collectively decided what you have come to decide, that Woodrow Wilson is the worst president in United States history, at least definitely from the libertarian perspective, maybe not from like a totalitarian war-loving perspective. But just off the bat there, he was responsible for the institution of the income tax, the creation of the Federal Reserve, the entrance into World War I. If there's anything else you want to add to that, you can. But I'm actually kind of curious, since you brought that up, were there positive aspects of Woodrow Wilson that you found that might have contradicted what you went in there, you know, believing generally, which is what we generally believe, that he was a terrible president from that perspective. But are there some of those things, as you mentioned, that kind of stood out that might have surprised you along the way about him? Not a whole lot, to be honest with you so far. <laughs> I'm still... In this case, he really was that bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even like his personality, because there's some presidents, like, for example, Franklin Roosevelt, who I would say is probably second or third worst president in American history. Franklin Roosevelt... For all the terrible things I could say about, you know, what he did as president, his, his politics, his policies, his decisions, still on some level, at least on what I've read on him, he kind of comes across as kind of just in a personal way, like a, a charming sort of a guy. You know, like, like if you hung out with him, like he would, he would be a nice, charming guy to hang out with. Now, not saying that that excuses any of the horrible decisions he made and, and, and decisions, including some of which that led to tons of people dying, but, but but at least with Franklin Roosevelt, you could sort of say, like, well, you know, he's kind of charming in a personal situation. Whereas Wilson just comes across as, as even in that regard, rarely very charming or warm or friendly or anything like this. But as far as positives about Wilson, most of the ones I've come across have been pretty minor. The only one I'll say about him that's at least somewhat significant is he was pretty good on the issue of tariffs and free trade. He was generally a low tariff guy and tried to lower the tariff. It had, it had been at, at record levels for decades because Republicans had dominated the White House for most of the decades since the Civil War when he came in. There had only been Grover Cleveland, Democrat in the White House, since, between, between the Civil War and when Wilson came in. So the tariff was at sky-high levels, and he, he fought and I think Wilson had only, you know, some partial success, but he, he did try to lower the tariff. So he, he was good on the issue of free trade. However, even with that, there's, there's a, a caveat or a counterbalance, and that's this. He, like many progressives at the time, linked the idea of lowering the tariff 
with the idea of getting an income tax and using the income tax to make up the revenue that would be lost by lowering the tariff. <laughs> so even on an issue where he's kind of you know libertarian on that one issue, it's like then he's advocating for an income tax, which I think most people would argue is less libertarian than a tariff. It's much more invasive. It's much more, you know, has much more potential to be abused by the IRS in terms of, you know, selective enforcement and all this sort of things. So yeah, there's really not a whole lot to say about Wilson that's positive. It's quite something. I guess it really certifies his case as the worst president when the one sort of good thing he did directly led to one of the absolute worst, you know, taxes imposed in, in American history. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's like, you know, let's say like someone who who today maybe was campaigning to legalize marijuana across the board. But at the same time, that same person is also pushing to recriminalize alcohol and impose draconian punishments on it or something like that. It's like, you know, this isn't maybe the the best solution. Everyone can just smoke weed now and we're going to totally crack down on anything else you can put in your body. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hey, friends, I got to take a quick pause here to tell you about another great libertarian podcast out there. It's called Free Man Beyond the Wall, hosted by the artist formerly known as Mance Raider, now known simply by his real name of Pete Raymond. And I got to tell you, Pete is a machine. This guy brings you a new episode of his own every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and he has done some absolutely fantastic in-depth interviews. He's had on everybody from Ron Paul to Thaddeus Russell to Phil Labonte, the lead singer of All That Remains, a very diverse group of guests, not always libertarians. He also did a great show with a Washington, D.C., insider lobbyist revealing a lot of the dirt that goes on behind the scenes in DC. He has done so many interviews that I have just said, darn, I wish I did this one myself. So I really do want to highly recommend checking out Free Man Beyond the Wall. You can find it over at freemanbeyondthewall.com as well as iTunes, Stitcher, and all those fancy podcatchers out there. CJ, uh, obviously the title of your podcast is Dangerous History, and I'm curious how you would define that term. What aspects of history make certain aspects of it dangerous, and who is it dangerous to? You you talk about the establishment, so what exactly makes something dangerous to the establishment, and who actually is this establishment? Okay, well, the term dangerous, I mean it in the way there's a quote by H.L. Mencken, and there's many quotes I love by H.L. Mencken, but one of my favorites from him is, and I probably won't get it exactly, but it's something like, the most dangerous man to any society is the man who is able to think things out for himself without regard to all the prevailing superstitions and taboos. And then he goes on to say something like, such a man inevitably decides that the system he lives under is corrupt and intolerable. And if he's idealistic, he'll try to change it. And even if he's not idealistic, he may inspire those who are to try to improve it. It's something like that, right? So that's what I mean by dangerous in the context of dangerous history is it's dangerous to have people really think for themselves and really be independent-minded and think critically and have a broader conception of the available information and evidence on these sorts of topics. and that. Basically, it's dangerous in the sense of it can cause people to become mentally much more emancipated, to, to really be an independent thinker about all these things. So that's the sort of history that I try to zero in on. And the establishment, I don't mean it in the, 
in the the tinfoil hat sense literally of like the lizard people who are having secret meetings and controlling the world i mean i think there's some truth to some of that stuff but i also think a lot of just the lizard part right? yeah yeah exactly exactly <laughs> but, but a lot of what, what's out there you know goes way too far down the rabbit hole for for my taste but but by the establishment i mean the state itself and all of the satellite institutions around it that kind of benefit from it directly and indirectly and have a vested interest in bolstering it and in making it seem more legit in the eyes of the population as much as possible. So here I'm thinking about things like academia, some of which is, you know, tied into the state, some of which isn't directly, but only indirectly. But, you know, you look at all the privileges and things that academia gets from their kind of cozy relationship with the state itself. You look at the mainstream media, same deal. I mean, you know, why are they so uncritical in their reporting of government policies and wars and things? Well, you look at how much benefit they get from their, their friendly relationship with the state. I could probably come up with others, but, you know, in some, on some level, at least some organized religions, I know they're not all like that and I'm not making that blanket statement, but, you know, there, there's a fair amount, and this ties into something I got into a lot in the Civil War series, by the way, which is there's this whole concept of civil religion, this this interesting kind of symbiotic relationship between at least some some organized religions and the state, where you know they get their their tax exempt status and certain other perks and privileges, and then there's kind of a sort of a, a tacit unspoken understanding of like you know, the old idea of what used to be called the Alliance of Throne and Altar, the idea that the state will give religious institutions certain perks and privileges, and then in return, they kind of want those churches to not rock the boat, not, you know, encourage people to question the the status quo and, and the state and everything and, and that sort of thing. So that's who dangerous history and dangerous ideas in general, they're dangerous too. I mean, they're dangerous to the individual too, in the sense that like they may cause you to lose friends. They may cause you to, to get a reputation <laughs> sure. as a weirdo or something like this. But then again, they may cause you to gain friends that you like better than the ones you lose. So you might end up better off anyway. But it's, it's really dangerous to these established vested interests of the state itself and its, its satellite institutions that it's kind of in, in bed with. Speaking of losing friends, making friends, I think that the area that you've recently dove into in a huge way, the Civil War, is one area where libertarians often take a contrarian position in some ways. And that can certainly lead to people looking at you askew uh, in some aspects. But I do really want to dive into to the Civil War and some, some of the various perspectives there. I think you've, you've both gone against the establishment line in some ways and in other way has gone against many of uh, the standard libertarian narratives that you hear too. So before we get into exactly uh, some of those specifics, I'm curious, why did you decide to embark on this journey, this gigantic, monumentous deep dive into the American Civil War? Well, it was just one of those things where it's the single biggest looming event in many ways in American history. And it's one of the most popular topics in American history still to this day maybe only World War II is at all competitive with it. And even that, I'm not sure. You, know, you actually go to a brick-and-mortar bookstore and go to their history section, and a huge amount of it in most bookstores will be Civil War if you're in an American bookstore. So there's that. It's just the biggest thing. It's a very popular topic. I've had more than a few listeners before I did it asking me if I was ever going to cover it. And you know, most of my audience is American. I do have a global audience, but, but last I checked, something like 80% or a little bit more of my downloads are from the U.S., 
So, you know, I knew it would be something people would be interested in. I knew it would be something that would reach a big audience and, and get a lot of attention. So I just kind of went into it with an open mind and an empty sort of a slate, not quite sure exactly what my take was going to be on all the different aspects of it. I kind of had an idea about some things because I had studied it a bit before, but I delved a lot deeper into it in my research than I ever have before, including when I was a student and all that. So, yeah, I mean, I kind of let the evidence take me where it would and tried to be as fair in in all respects as I could. And I mean, first off, I had no idea how big this thing was going to get in terms of how many hours and how many episodes and that it would literally take me over two years to do it all. I don't know if I would have done it if uh, if I had known that. It was one of those things where I thought like, yeah, I'll knock this out in a few months and, you know, maybe a half a dozen episodes of an hour or so a piece. And next- sure, just a quick little project. Yeah, yeah. Next thing you know, you know, it's turning into hours and hours and hours and yeah. So, I mean, as you alluded to, my take on it is one that probably most people are not going to be happy with because no matter what you think going in. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because ultimately my conclusion is like that both sides were pretty bad in a lot of ways. And, and I kind of took the same approach to it that I take to conventional party politics, which is like, I refuse to choose the lesser of two evils between the Democrats and the Republicans or whatever. You know, I, I refuse to say like, oh, this one's slightly less repulsive. So I'm going to act like they're great and become an apologist for them. So there's in my reading of all this, there's like very significant negative things. If, if you're some sort of libertarian and you think that, that liberty is the most important political value and all that, there's real, real problems with both sides in this war. In a way, both of them were fighting for the worst possible reason that they could have been fighting for. The Union, in many ways, especially for the first half of the war, was not primarily fighting to free slaves. And the Confederacy, for their part, was fighting to keep slaves. And I think the evidence is pretty overwhelming that that was the main motivating factor behind Southern secession in the first place. And so, you know, there's this tendency, and and I understand it amongst some libertarians, because first off, a lot of us tend to be just sort of contrarians and generalist people. Nah, come on. Yeah. yeah. And And then secondly, there's a lot of us, part of our journey has been kind of waking up to some of the nasty crimes and misbehavior of the U.S. government over the past couple hundred years. And so, you know, we have a tendency to maybe once we learn some of the darker aspects of Lincoln and the Union War effort, then we we get into this, you know, just jump to the other side of the dichotomy and suddenly make the Confederates into these libertarian heroes. And, you know, it, it's also appealing because they, they were the underdog in, in manpower and in material terms and, and all that stuff. They were clearly the underdog. So there's that, that other reason to kind of sympathize with them a little bit. But at the end of the day, and I'm generally for decentralization, and I'm generally for larger political units breaking into smaller pieces and that sort of thing, but only as a tactical move, not as an end in itself, and not, o- not always as an automatic good, because to me, it kind of matters why someone's trying to secede in the first place, because potentially there might be reasons to secede from a larger you know, nation or empire or whatever that are not necessarily the most libertarian of reasons, like wanting to defend chattel slavery as an institution. So, yeah, my conclusion on this whole thing was kind of like they're 
they're both kind of bad. And yeah, Canada won the Civil War, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> now, that's some dangerous history right there, telling yeah. people that Canada actually won the Civil War. Yeah, well, just like Switzerland won World War II. There you go. There you go. So obviously you you run counter to the mainstream narrative, which of course just portrays Abraham Lincoln and the North as simply virtuous individuals who, while there may have been some economic reasons, were largely at war simply to free the slaves and end the oppression of the South. Let's just start there with with maybe people who aren't as haven't taken the deep dive that many libertarians have into Abraham Lincoln. What is incorrect exactly about that analysis? Obviously, I'm giving a, a you know a very blase overview of it, but that is generally how it is portrayed in movies, in school, in the history books. So what is incorrect about the idea that the North was primarily fighting to end slavery? Well, Lincoln himself, before the war and at the start of the war, was considered at best a moderate anti-slavery guy, not a radical abolitionist by any means. And he said in his first inaugural address, it's just kind of mind blowing to me that someone could even be moderate one way or the other on on slavery. I guess I guess our modern perspective on things, uh, you know, changes our view a bit. But, you know, I'm kind of for people being held against their will and forced into into us into labor. Yeah. Yeah. But nonetheless, that's what he was. And, and he was a very he was a very slick, skillful politician. So. That maybe explains part of it, you know, that that only only a consummate politician could pull off this this kind of weird, you know, I'm sort of anti-slavery, but not that much kind of kind of a stance. But he did. And so, for example, when he was running against Stephen Douglas for Senate in the 1850s, he would say different things about slavery and race depending on his audience. So in Illinois, in Southern Illinois, the audience was culturally more like Southerners. And in Northern Illinois, they were more like, you know, Northerners. And so he would say to a Northern Illinois audience things that sounded more abolitionist. And then he'd speak in the Southern part of the state and he would say things that were much more, you know, by today's terms, extremely racist. So, but then he, he comes at his president and some of the, the Southern states are seceding, South Carolina and the rest of the so-called Deep South. And in his first inaugural address, he says explicitly that he has no desire to interfere with, state, with slavery in states where it already exists. And he, has, he doesn't think he has the legal authority to do so and he has no desire to do so. And he even supported an amendment at the time, 1861, called the Corwin Amendment that would have guaranteed slavery perpetually in all the states where it was already an existing institution. Abraham Lincoln's only stance at the time he became president against slavery was he was opposed to it spreading into new territories out west. That was his his only real hard line on slavery. Why did he take that line? Well, I mean, on some level, I think he he believed it. On some level, I have to believe that he did oppose slavery, just not in a in a very strong, consistent, radical way. So there's that. But there's there's also other things he said that are a little bit more questionable. Like for example, he said in one speech, I think back when he was running for Senate in 1858, he said something about that he kind of wanted to just keep black people out of the West and that keeping slavery out of the West was a good way to to keep black people out of the West. Now you always have to wonder with him because I think he was saying this to another one of these Southern Illinois audiences. You have to wonder, was that really what was motivating him? Was he wanted to keep the, the keep black people in general out of the West and so keep slavery out of the West to do that? Or was he just saying that because he was speaking to an audience that he thought that's what they wanted to hear? I mean, 
you know, it's, it's really hard, hard to say for sure with Lincoln because he was so slick. I mean, he was, you know, he could give Bill Clinton some lessons as far as just telling people <laughs> what they want to hear and pandering and stuff. So at the, at the end of the day, I guess it's kind of hard to know at what point Lincoln's actual beliefs seeped in. He's said some contradictory things over the years about slavery, becoming, I guess, more and more against it as he got more and more into the Civil War. So it's we can't read – neither you nor I can read minds ultimately. The fact is his, his views did sort of evolve over time and to what extent they were – political base and to what extent their belief base is really just kind of speculation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, plus, you know, with him and with the Republican party, once it got formed in the mid 1850s, there was an economic thing too, where Lincoln and the Republicans were the party that wanted things like high tariffs and and big subsidies to railroads and that sort of thing. And for various reasons, the slave states tended not to want those things. And so, Part of it, too, is that if slavery spreads to new states out west, then those states are going to tend to vote with the other southern states, and they're going to oppose things like protective tariffs and, and big railroad subsidies and all that. So, you know, there, there were vested ec- economic interests. And oh, another, another one that, that the southerners tended to be more skeptical of was the idea of a national bank, that Lincoln and the Republicans supported a national bank. So, you know, it's it's all very complex. There, there's multiple reasons why they might oppose slavery. Some some of them maybe are good ones, and some of them are much more kind of political and economic and that sort of thing. All right, let's switch and talk about the motivations of the South a bit because this is one area that. I think over the years, at least people that have been involved in the libertarian movement for some time, like myself, at some point we kind of stumble along a lot of the stuff you've been talking about, the sort of contrarian views about Lincoln, that he was really more concerned with keeping the union together than he was about ending slavery. And of course, all the many other you know things that he did during the war in terms of jailing journalists and uh, many, many other sort of atrocities, which you, you do detail throughout your series. But now I'd like to talk a little bit about the, I think at some point, point there are we, when we dive into this work, it does come across, and, and probably I have to say more than come across, uh, especially in the work of Thomas DiLorenzo, who uh, did his book, The Real Lincoln and The Lincoln Unmasked, kind of diving into Lincoln. But through a lot of his work and a lot of the discussion around libertarian circles, it almost seems to downplay the idea that the South was motivated by slavery. It kind of, you really get the sense that they're trying to act like slavery was really not even a factor in the war at all, when clearly, as you detail it in, in many ways, there was a main motivation of the South and Southern political leaders to maintain slavery, whether or not the, the North's main motivation you know, was the same at all, is sort of irrelevant to the idea of what they were motivated to do, which does seem to be largely motivated by the maintaining of the institution of slavery. Right. And to me, what's, what's really convincing is the words of Southern leaders themselves at the time. And, and that's what when people will say, oh, the South wasn't really seceding because of slavery, the problem with that is you really can't find virtually any Southern leaders in, say, 1860, 1861 saying that. You can't find them saying, oh, we're seceding because – well, not because of slavery. That's BS. We're actually seceding because of all these other things like the tariff, and slavery is just a red herring. No one's saying that. They are saying loud and clear, front and center, of course, because they thought it was right. They, they had no reason to hide it. They didn't have our sensibilities. They were saying explicitly, our number one reason we are seceding is because of slavery and, and wanting to defend it. And, you know, Lincoln may not have been an abolitionist, but 
it's pretty clear that many, many, many Southern leaders thought he was. And so it, it almost doesn't matter if Lincoln was really an abolitionist. That doesn't make the point. That doesn't make the point about Confederate motivations because they thought he was a hardcore abolitionist who sympathized with John Brown and all that. And they said so. And so when you find quotes and things from, from Southern leaders and Confederates and whatever saying, oh, it wasn't really about slavery, in my experience, those are almost always things that were written well after the war was already over and lost. And they were trying to save face. They were trying to propagate what's known as the lost cause mythology, this romanticism of the Confederacy and its motivations. And so once the war was already lost and the the institution of slavery had been abolished, the 13th Amendment had been passed, and much of American and world opinion outside of the South was that, yes, slavery was a bad thing and we're glad it's gone. Then it was to the advantage of the ideological goals and and motivations of these ex-Confederates to start saying and writing memoirs and whatever, saying, oh, this wasn't really about slavery, because this is making their their cause look more noble and romantic and all this sort of thing. But go back to the, the time period when the Southern states were actually debating and then voting on secession. Every Southern leader that I could find, including political leaders, media leaders, theological leaders, like some of the South's leading pastors and ministers, they were all saying very, very blatantly and explicitly, they weren't hiding it, that, yeah, this is, this is about protecting slavery. And so all I can guess is that people who want to keep, you know, this idea that, that the, the South in seceding wasn't motivated by slavery in any significant way, they have a real problem because either they've not bothered to go look at what those Southern leaders themselves said at the time, in which case they're, they're making a claim, they're making an argument that they've not properly looked into and researched, or they're aware that all these Southern leaders were saying in unison that this is about slavery. And for whatever reason, either they're either they're being intellectually dishonest and just, you know, leaving leaving those things out of whatever work it is they're producing or whatever it is they're saying. So the people who make the argument that the Confederacy, that the South in seceding were not motivated primarily by slavery, either they've not bothered to look at what leading Southerners were actually saying during the time period of secession, in which case they're making an argument, they're making a claim that they've not actually done the research to back up, or they're aware that there's this mountain of primary source evidence. I, I think in my my last episode in the series, I went into like for an hour and a half or two hours just reading Southern primary sources saying, oh yeah, this is all about slavery. So it's not like the it's not like it's hard to find these things. I, I found a mountain of them. But Maybe they're aware, the people who are saying that, that Southern secession wasn't about slavery, maybe they're aware that, that all of these sources exist, but they have some other explanation for it. Could be they're being intellectually dishonest, and they know that there's all this primary source evidence of Southerners saying it's about slavery, but they're just choosing to not include that in their argument or in their work or in their book or whatever it is. Or maybe they have some ex- other explanation for it, like all the leading Southerners who are saying that they're seceding because of slavery were somehow not 
right <laughs> or mistaken <laughs> in their own minds. In other words, false consciousness. They, they were, were wrong about their own reasons. Yeah, they didn't understand their own motivations. You know, They were really motivated by a tariff, but they thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And part of the problem with, you know, you could, I guess, argue that they were, well, they were politicians after all. So maybe they weren't saying their true motivations. Sure. But the problem is it would have been politically advantageous to Southerners if the world perceived it as they were not primarily seceding over slavery, because if Southern leaders were saying loud and clear, oh, this isn't really about slavery, it's about other stuff. First off, it would have meant that a fair number of Northerners would have been more sympathetic to them because there were Northerners unhappy about the tariff and things like that. But also it would have meant that uh, the European nations would have been much more likely to, to openly recognize and support the Confederacy, particularly the British. The main thing that held the British back from helping the Confederacy in any major overt way was that the British had already abolished slavery 30 years ago in their empire and had kind of, you know, committed themselves to anti-slavery causes. So it would have actually helped the Confederacy if they would have been loud and clear saying, oh, this isn't about slavery. So what other explanation is there for all of them saying this other than maybe it's actually what they really believe? One more aspect of this I want to dive into a little bit more, and this might get us into dangerous territory, but th that is your territory, so maybe that's okay. But you know, a couple of years ago on this program, this actually started a, a bit of an internet libertarian firestorm when a Libertarian Party chairman, Nicholas Sarwark, stated that uh, states' rights is not a, a per se libertarian position. And this you know, inspired a big backlash, and I had Mike Meharry of the 10th Amendment center on to sort of counter that position. And I brought up just the idea of slavery, uh, just from a conceptual point of view, from the aspect of while Let's say, obviously, any hardcore anarchist or libertarian is going to generally have a problem with a strong, centralized government like the North or like the North was trying to further become in the Civil War. At the same time, any libertarian should be 100% opposed to the concept of slavery. So how do you sort of sort that out from your point of view of, of not only looking at history, but having that libertarian slash anarchist, however you want to say it, perspective of focusing on individual rights, where obviously ending slavery is the proper thing to do, but perhaps forming a, a giant centralized state isn't a great thing. So where do you fall on, on sort of trying to insert your philosophy into how history actually actually played out and how you might, you know, say it should, maybe not necessarily in the context of history, but just in the sense of how we sort of battle this idea of individual rights and the fact that many libertarians will support the concept of states' rights, if nothing more than as sort of a tool to advance liberty in one way or another. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the way that I would untangle that is I would say that and, and part of this is where I'm coming from. I'm coming from kind of a Lysander Spooner point of view philosophically. So I can understand how someone who's maybe a libertarian coming from a very different place in that maybe would see some of this differently. But, but to me, the only, the only real legitimate rights are individual rights. And so to me, states' rights are no more legitimate than federal rights in and of themselves. And what I mean by that is that states' rights are not inherently good or legitimate unless we're talking about a specific case in which the state is because to me a state government is no more legitimate than the federal government just in general so if the state government is doing something to protect individual rights from the federal government then i would be in favor of that 
from like a tactical and pragmatic point of view, even though I would still think that, you know, states' rights are no more legitimate than any other government, quote unquote, rights. But I would still say like, oh, it's a good thing. Like if the federal government's trying to, I don't know, throw someone in in prison for weed and the state government stepped in the way of that and prevented that from happening, I'd be like, okay, that's good. I'm, I'm glad that happened. So to me, it's the same thing if you're talking about states' rights in general as secession, which is it matters to me why. It matters to me the specific instance of states' rights to do what. So – if, for example, a state was invoking its state's rights in order to transgress upon an individual's rights beyond even what the federal government would be okay with, then that's a case where potentially I might side more with the feds. I mean, that doesn't happen very often, but you know, theoretically, like let's say, I don't know, some state made it so that in that state you get the death penalty for shoplifting, right? And the federal government stepped in and said, hey, you know, under whatever legal rationale or whatever, I'm not a constitutional authority or lawyer, but, uh, oh, you know, that's somehow not not okay, that's unconstitutional, whatever. I would kind of side more with the feds in that instance. Or in the case of, let's say, a state government was trying to drastically restrict free speech in some way and was throwing people in prison for saying things, and it was the feds in that instance in this hypothetical who are saying like, well, you know, first amendment, you got to let them out again. I would not in that instance go, well, but states rights are always better. So therefore, you know, so that that's where I come down that, that states rights like secession can be a useful thing from a tactical and pragmatic point of view, but it matters what they're being invoked and used for. Yeah. There are those that would argue and and have argued. I mean, Tom Woods has made this argument on my show that even in situations, and he wasn't talking about slavery or anything like anything like as bad as you mentioned, to be clear, we weren't talking about anything specific, but you know, generally he would view the idea of a federal government, even if they're on the right side, the idea of allowing them the sort of quote unquote right to intervene, giving them that power is more of a danger than whatever good they might be doing. I certainly don't take that that tack to me. I kind of see it your way in a sense that we have to look at everything as an individual right. And I, I just look at everything like this, like what I consider myself as having the right to intervene on a smaller scale, say, you know, say someone in my neighborhood is known to be holding children hostage and torturing them brutally. Do I have the right to go into his house, even though it's his property, even though he has quote unquote property rights and to free those children and stop that? Of course I do. Might not be realistic. I'm just one guy who knows what he's got going on there, but I absolutely, of course, have the right to gather friends and gather others and prevent if we, of course, in a situation where we literally do know that this is occurring and he is guilty of this, to free those children. I mean, that, that's that's very clear. And I, I see it really no different if we're going to take a moral perspective on these things, that we have to apply that same exact ideology to any level of government or any level of intervention. So if, if it happens to be someone from the FBI that is coming in and uh, freeing these children, I'm sure I may t- disagree that that organization should be funded the way it is. I might disagree that there should be an FBI, but I'm still going to side with the guys doing the right thing at the end of the day. Right, right. I mean, theoretically, even the most local form of government can become, 
I mean, not just oppressive in the sense of like, you know, all taxation is theft, but but like really, really egregiously oppressive, right? I mean, suppose your local city government just decides to completely target you for some kind of, even by the state's own standards, you know, outrageous persecution in some way, and suppose the next layer of government up in some way blocks it or, or steps in the way of it. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say like, oh, that's bad that whatever your state government prevented your city government from completely ruining your rights or something. You know, I, I understand the concept that in general, decentralism is better than centralization. Like I understand that, but at the same time, I still have to look at each specific instance or case or whatever in order to figure out whose side I'm on, if any, because sometimes there are there are controversies where both sides are not great. All right. Well, that's one case where, much like if you bring up the Civil War and libertarian positions on the Civil War uh, at the dinner table, you're going to piss a few people off. I think this is one area where we're bound to have pissed off a few libertarians along this conversation. But you don't shy away from dangerous conversation. It's actually what you look for on your program, Dangerous History. And I know we could talk about the Civil War and all this stuff for, well, for literally at least 28 hours, because <laughs> you've, you've proven that. But we will just simply direct listeners to go listen to the Dangerous History podcast and learn more about your work on the on the Civil War and many many other areas. Obviously, you you dive into uh, pretty much any aspect of, of American history and, and etc. So uh, why don't we just um, before I let you go, why don't you just let people know exactly how they can find out more about the Dangerous History podcast and feel free to promote any other big projects you've got going on. Not that you need another big project right away, but feel free to promote anything you've got in the works. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for that. And if you just type in Dangerous History podcast. Com. That'll take you to my homepage and you'll find everything there. The podcast is available on all the usual podcast venues, iTunes, Stitcher, all the other kind of usual suspects. So, you know, check it out and uh, subscribe to the podcast and, and listen to it. And as far as things I've got in the works, well, I'm going to be doing some non-American history, which I've done from time to time. I've even done some ancient history topics in the, in the past. So I am going to be doing some non-American history stuff coming up. Like I said, though, the series on Woodrow Wilson, which will probably be a pretty long series too, because there's just so much dirt on that guy. That's coming up in, in the relatively near future, though I've been saying that for many months. So don't, don't take me seriously. I'm, I'm very bad at estimating how long it'll take me to make things, but that's in the works. I've got a standalone episode about a massacre in colonial Spanish Florida that hardly anybody knows about, actually two massacres. That's actually partially done and should be coming out relatively soon. And that's a story that probably most people have no idea about. And then I've got for people who support the show, either on Patreon or on Subscribestar, I've got a bunch of bonus episodes there as well. And I've got, it might end up being two parts. I'm not sure yet. But I've got at least one, possibly two bonus episodes in the works right now having specifically to do with things like the weaponry and the tactics and things like that of the Civil War. Things I didn't get into in a huge amount of depth during my basic series on it. So that's in the works. And yeah, DangerousHistoryPodcast.com. And if you want to support it, Patreon or Subscribestar, and you'll get ad-free versions of the show, bonus episodes, all kinds of cool stuff. 
All right, CJ. Well, it's been a blast having you on. And if anyone out there is even remotely semi-obsessed with history, you've got to check out the Dangerous History Podcast. I do highly recommend it. It's not simply valuable only for the fact that it's really great information, but the fact that CJ is able to sort of incorporate a lot of libertarian philosophy through his interpretation. So it really is something I highly recommend to libertarians out there. So CJ, it's been a blast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. And more, maybe more importantly, keep being dangerous. All right. I will do that. And thanks very much for having me on. It's been fun. Thanks, CJ. All right, friends, enemies. If you're enemies of mine and you're listening right now, I appreciate it. You, you must really like liberty. <laughs> but uh, either way, I hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with CJ Kilmer. I most certainly did. And uh, I was planning to do a bonus segment with CJ. We kind of went over time on, on the interview, so we did cut things a little short. We both had had things to do. So I do hope to have him back uh, to talk about a few other topics because he's really gone deep on so many different issues. And I really do recommend, if you're into history at all, uh, not necessarily from a libertarian perspective, but just into history, the kind of stuff that CJ uncovers and the stories he's able to weave really are fascinating. So I do highly recommend checking out the Dangerous History podcast. I will, of course, link to that in today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 396. Don't forget, like I mentioned at the top of the show, these shows are completely free. You get them three days a week. Me on Mondays, Brian on Wednesdays with Electric Liberty Land, and John Odermatt with Felony Fridays every single Friday. But if you crave more, and if you want to show your appreciation, well, we have methods for you to do this, and that is by joining our Patreon, joining the Lions of Liberty Pride, by heading over to patreon.com slash lionsofliberty for as little as $5 a month. You can get exclusive access to all sorts of bonus audio content. And while we didn't get to a bonus show with CJ this week, actually, that's not true. I do have a very short bonus chat with CJ that I'm going to add. It's about 10 minutes long. It was impromptu, off the cuff, but it was pretty interesting. So I am going to have a very short bonus show with CJ for you over on Patreon. Uh, But I did solicit questions from members of the Lions of Liberty Pride, as I often do for bonus segments with guests. And I wasn't able to get to those questions, but my good friend Dan Smots over at the System is Down podcast actually hijacked those questions and used them for a bonus show that he did with CJ. So if you do want to hear the answers to the bonus show questions that could have appeared on, on our Patreon, well, join the System is Down Patreon. So that's a free advertisement for our friend Dan Smots. Again, I was recently on his show on a segment called Tripartisan Triggering, representing the ideas of liberty against a Democrat and Republican. And what was a very friendly and fun conversation, but uh, it was the first time I really had them coming at me in a friendly way again, but doing so to try to get to the ideas and find some flaws in the ideas of liberty. So uh, I encourage you to check that out. I will link to that in today's show notes as well. But another perk of being a member of the Lions of Liberty Pride, if you are a $10 or higher member, you get a 15% discount on our delicious morning roar coffee, which again, you can find over at lionsofliberty.com slash coffee. So you do get a discount on your first purchase, even if you're not a member of the Pride. So why don't you go ahead, give it a shot. And if you love it and you plan to buy it all the time, join the Lions of Liberty Pride for $10 a month. That is also the level where you get video content uh, of a lot of the stuff we do behind the scenes, a lot of the bonus content we do, like Conspiracy Corner, League of Liberty, and uh, some bonus libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor shows that we do, as well as a free t-shirt, a free beer koozie. But on top of all that great stuff, you now also get a 15% discount 
on our delicious morning roar coffee. So again, please do check out our Patreon if you want to show that little extra appreciation for us and get some more great bonus content coming at you each and every week. Please do check that out at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. And again, today's episode of Lions of Liberty has been brought to you by mathbot.com. The pen may be mightier than the sword, but my friend's code is even mightier than the pen. So learn how to build the tools that will bring prosperity and freedom to the world and learn how to code over at mathbot.com. Once again, that is mathbot.com. Become mighty, my friends. And until next time, live long and live free.